Good morning, I'm Pastor Jay. It is my privilege to invite you to open your Bibles to the Older Testament, what we call the Hebrew Bible, to the book of Exodus, chapter 20. Very interesting. Some people wonder how the books of the Bible get their name. The name Exodus is not the original name of the book. In the Hebrew Bible, which the Old Testament was written in mostly Hebrew, some Aramaic, but in the Hebrew Bible, especially the Pentateuch, the first five books, the names of the books are different than we have in English. And the reason for that comes from the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible in about 200 B.C. in Alexandria, Egypt. And that became the Bible, actually, of the early church. Most of Jesus' quotes in the Gospels are from the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Hebrew. And in the Septuagint, this book is called Exodus. In the Hebrew Bible, in fact, the first five books take their name from just the opening words of the book in the Hebrew Bible. But it was renamed in the Septuagint called Exodus, obviously, because God delivered His people. They exited, so to speak, uh, out of Egypt. And so that's where the name comes from. We're in a series on the Ten Commandments found in this book, chapter 20. These are also found, by the way, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 5. That was the second giving of the law. And a new generation had arisen, and so God regave the Ten Commandments. And you can find those in Deuteronomy 5, we're working from the list in Exodus 20, and we're looking at one a week. And here's what we've learned about the law, and especially about Ten Commandments. This has been critical. We've learned that one of the biggest misnomers when it comes to these is that God somehow gave these as a means of salvation. You know, He gave his, these to His people and said, here, here's, here's ten rules, follow these, and you'll be good to me. Well, we've discovered and been reminded of many times, we violate these all the time, all of us do, and these hang around our neck like a death sentence if, if that's the means of getting saved, and that that's really not the purpose, that these were not given to save us, but they were given to those who were already saved. That's a huge difference. To show those who already know God how to flourish the wise path avoiding foolish and destructive choices. That's the purpose of the Ten Commandments. I have not really done much of a recap of them. I'm going to do that very quickly here of the first seven. Let me just kind of breeze through them very quickly. First, and these are called, if you've been with us, these are called the Ten Words in Hebrew, not the Ten Commandments. And we get that from the list in Deuteronomy. They're actually not called the Ten Words. They're not identified as Ten in Exodus, only in Deuteronomy. So we know there's 10, and we know that Protestants and Catholics historically have numbered them just a little differently, but you got to end up with 10 because it says there's 10 words in Deuteronomy chapter 4. So we know there's 10 of them. So the first one is that you should have no other gods before God. Now, not that there are other gods, but he's very clear, I'm the only true God, and I'm the only means of salvation from coming judgment. Second commandment tells us don't ever make a physical image of God, none. You cannot do that. God chose to reveal Himself primarily in words, sometimes in visions, but He was very clear, I don't want physical images constructed of me. He said it will reduce me. 
Third commandment warns us or talks to us about the danger of misusing the name of God. The fourth commandment instructs us to honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy, that that one day in seven is to look different. It is to be a day of the word Shabbat actually means rest. And we learn then from the New Testament when the name was sort of changed to the Lord's day, it is a day of rest and worship. But that seventh day is to look different than the other six days of the week. The fifth commandment reminds us to honor our father and mother. This is a tough one for those raised in abusive homes or homes that were less than healthy. And yet the command stands, whether our parents are dead, whether they were honorable or dishonorable. Ultimately, this one goes back to how we view God. He's sovereign. He put us in the homes we were born into. And he instructs us, whether our parents are alive or dead, Christian or not Christian, honorable or dishonorable, we are to honor them because God put them over us ultimately, even if we have no contact with them anymore, or even if we were abused. This one's a tough one, but it stands. It's a very important one. The sixth commandment reminds us, don't murder. And then we saw in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus took that and said, well, there's more than one way to murder people. And one of the ways is by hating them and or not forgiving them, holding grudges. We talked about that and the importance of forgiving others. And the seventh commandment instructs us not to commit adultery, broadly not to commit sexual sin, to restrain sexual desire. And then Jesus, again, in the Sermon on the Mount, takes that further, goes into the interior, and He says, look it, if you even lust, if you lust over somebody else that's not your spouse, that is violating the seventh commandment. This weekend, we come to the eighth commandment. Refuse to steal. Refuse to steal. All right, here's the news bulletin. Every one of you is a thief. <laughs> so am I. That's just us chickens here, so let's just be honest, okay? We've all stolen in some way or another. And we've all had something stolen from us, haven't we? Kids, young people, adults, I mean, we've all had stuff stolen from us. And if it's something significant, you know the sense of violation you feel, the sense of betrayal you feel, and frustration, and, and, and even just anger, especially if it's something like uh, that's very, you know, a home that's been broken into or something or multiple times. Might explain a sign I read about a while back, guy that had been frustrated at home, been broken into several times, put, put the sign in his lawn, warning, you know, this property is protected by a pit bull with AIDS. You know, <laughs> you know, stay away. Don't touch my property anymore. But this morning we come to this commandment. We're going to look at it afresh. It's very simple. It, again, it's only two words in Hebrew. I don't normally preach sermons on two words, but it is worth slowing things down at times because these are the living words of God. And even these two simple words in Hebrew, four in English, have a lot to say and a lot to teach us and some warnings that we need to take to heart. So this is a commandment ultimately that is foundational for culture. You cannot have a civil culture if this commandment is not honored. And it's interesting looking at the history of the world. It is not exclusive. I have read of a very few cultures, primitive cultures or tribal cultures where stealing was actually exalted. But for the most part, virtually every culture around the world has condemned stealing and condemns it for good reasons. It's very destructive. And if a culture gives into this, impulse or even exalts it 
it becomes very toxic and dangerous. All right, first thing we're going to do, we're going to look at the what of the command. It is in Exodus chapter 20, verse 15. Again, I will read it, four words in almost every English translation. The old King James, thou shall not steal, or New International Version, you shall not steal, two words in Hebrew. Uh, I grew up in uh, northern Michigan. First, I grew up in California for a number of years, but then we moved to northern Michigan when I was a teenager. And uh, just one example, I remember uh, my parents bought a motel up in northern Michigan after we'd lived in Southern California, and it was a mom and pop kind of place, you know, and, and, and owning a motel of under 40 units is a little bit like kind of having a family farm. I mean, everybody hands on deck all the time. There's always something broken, a water heater, a furnace, there's always something that needs fixed, the pop machine always needs filled, there's always trash to empty, there's always rooms that need to be cleaned, it's just an ever-ending thing. And so I was often with my dad, and I was very thankful that he, at age 35, left California and took us, and we kind of did this family business thing. Well, one morning I was accompanying him over to open up the office. We lived behind the motel for several years in a house. And we were walking over when it was a winter morning, because I remember there were footprints in the snow, and we walked up, and a window was smashed, broken, and there were footprints leading right up to it in the snow, so that was kind of like obvious. So we go inside, someone had climbed in, there were muddy footprints on the floor. Immediately, I could see the alarm on my dad's face, somebody's broken in. We made our way up to the cash register in the, in the main office, and sure enough, I, remember my dad, I still remember very vividly, uh, somebody had pried open the cash register, and more than that, uh, we had had an event on the, uh, at the motel that week, and we had several thousand dollars in an envelope in a very private place in a filing cabinet. They knew where that was, and they got in, and they took it all. And I still remember my dad standing there and just saying out loud, we've been robbed, and there was just this anger in him. And, you know, I, I saw it quickly pass, but there was that sense of just, you know, I'm watching my dad, and he's like, we've been robbed. And it was for a good-sized chunk of money. We've all probably felt that, doing something and having something stolen from us. Eighth command, young people, kids, adults, this is not real hard to understand. Thou shall not steal. It's a straightforward reminder to respect the property of other people. In other words... There are proper ways and there are improper ways. Kids, there are proper ways and improper ways to get money and possessions. The Bible, this is interesting, the Bible never condemns having private property. Now, this is not an endorsement of capitalism. The Bible doesn't teach, you know, a Western democratic version of capitalism like we know small d in America or Western culture. But there are economic principles in the Bible, but also the Bible doesn't endorse or teach socialism or communism either. It doesn't condemn having all goods in common, but it does endorse private property. And in the Mosaic Law, there are very clear endorsements of private property. So that's a very important principle. So despite what some have claimed, the Bible does not endorse common ownership of everything. Much of the Old Testament law actually has to deal with the rights of personal possessions and property and what happens when things are stolen. The big picture is that a biblical theology of possessions is grounded in creation and honest work. And the work we put simply, the Bible dignifies personal ownership of property. Whether you have earned it 
been given it or you inherited it. So whether you earned it or it was a gift or you inherited it legally, the Bible recognizes those as legit, legit. And the inherent wickedness of taking something that doesn't belong to us. The Bible is very clear about that. Throughout this series at times, we visit different catechisms. It's sometimes helpful to dip back beyond your own century to see how previous generations worded things. I love things like the Westminster Confession from the 1640s. This, to, this weekend, we're going to go back even further to the 1560s, to the Heidelberg Catechism, written in Germany, to the question, most of the great catechisms address the Ten Commandments one at a time. What do they prescribe? What do they forbid? Yada, yada. This one... 1563, Heidelberg Catechism, question number 110. This is just a great paragraph, so I thought, let's put it up on the screen this morning just to help all of us have a better grasp of this commandment. Question number 110, what does God forbid in the Eighth Commandment? Answer, God forbids not only outright theft and robbery, punishable by law, but in God's sight, theft also includes all scheming and swindling in order to get our neighbor's goods for ourselves whether by force or means that appear legitimate, such as inaccurate measurements of weight, size, or volume, fraudulent merchandising, counterfeit money, excessive interest, or any other means forbidden by God. In addition, God forbids all greed and pointless squandering of His gifts. Interesting. Probably there's some things in there you would not have automatically associated with, with stealing. It's interesting, in the Mosaic Law, there were very strict, I'd say, disciplines and punishments for theft. God takes it very seriously. I want to look at just one of those, and it's in Leviticus. If you would turn, just go over one book, Leviticus chapter 6. Leviticus 6, verses 1 to 7 is one of these examples where we see how seriously God takes stealing. And how evil it is. I mentioned in the first service, and I'll say it here, look it, and I don't say this to be harsh, I know in an audience's size, some of us are involved in stealing right now uh, through a number of different ways. We're going to look at some of the different ways we steal. But it's not, here, here, here's the good news, it's not an accident you're here this morning. And it's not an accident you're hearing this sermon this morning and you're hearing these words come from God's book. And my encouragement to you is if you are currently involved in stealing right now, that you would take this as an opportunity and a warning from God to repent and seek to make restitution before things get worse. Because I can guarantee they'll get worse. Leviticus chapter 6, here's a reminder of how God views stealing. The Lord said to Moses, if anyone sins and is unfaithful to the Lord by deceiving a neighbor about something entrusted to them or left in their care or about something stolen or if they cheat their neighbor or if they find lost property and lie about it, there's another form of stealing, or if they swear falsely about any such sin that people may commit. When they sin in any of these ways and realize their guilt, they must return what they have stolen or taken by extortion, or what was entrusted to them, or the lost property they found. Verse 5, 
or whatever it was they swore falsely about. They must make restitution in full and add a fifth of a value to it, 20%, and give it all to the owner on the day they present their guilt offering. Verse 6, And as a penalty they must bring to the priest, that is to the Lord, their guilt offering, a ram from the flock, one without defect and of the proper value, In this way, the priests will make atonement for them before the Lord, and they will be forgiven for any of the things they did not, that any of the things they did that made them guilty. So you had to add at least 20% of the original value. It shows God takes it seriously, and He wants the person compensated for the trouble that they went through. And then secondly, a guilt offering was to be made. So that's as far as we're going to go on the what this morning. God is very clear. Respect private property. Don't take other people's private property. Don't withhold private property you've found, etc., etc. Now, let's go secondly. Let's get to the why of the command. And then when we look at the how of obeying this, we'll get into some of the different ways we steal. So if you think, you know, oh, I'm good on this one, uh, none of us will be good on this by the time I'm done, <laughs> including me. And I'm having to do this a second time, so this is a bit convicting. Yeah. All right. Number one. Why, why this command? Well, this is not rocket science, okay? Let me just go through a few reasons. Number one, stealing's a sin against God, first and foremost. It's generally condemned, as I said, in almost every culture around the world. And it's interesting, the Bible's one of the few places where we find out why it's condemned. We're actually given the why, and the why is very simple. Because whatever someone possesses was ultimately given by God. Again, whether they earned it, or it was a gift, or they inherited it, if it's rightly acquired, it's ultimately, we're told, a gift from God. James chapter 1, verse 17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father. So therefore, to steal is to directly sin against God, and, and it violates His character. And so it's ultimately a sin against God. That's reason number one. Reason number two is that stealing injures other people. Stealing injures other people. Think of my dad in that situation. That was injury. Uh, in seminary, when we were, I was in seminary, we, uh, Becky and I were involved in a church and we got to know this couple. And we helped, we started, they came to faith in Christ, we started discipling them. And I remember just, this is just one simple example, they only had one car. It was here in Chicagoland and their car got stolen. And that's very injurious. I mean, they had to go through several weeks of, you know, filling out reports and waiting to try, try to find out and trying to get other transportation lined up. And it's very obvious that kind of thing is, is destructive. If you've ever had that happen to you, you know, depending on what was stolen, it could be very uh, destructive. Thirdly, this is a big one. <coughs> Excuse me. Stealing, hear this, I want you to hear this. Stealing injures you. Stealing injures us. More than injury to others uh, is the injury we inflict on ourselves. So let, let me speak again pastorally here and prophetically a little bit. I know some of us are involved in stealing right now. You know who you are. You are injuring yourself. Can I just say pastorally? What you're doing to yourself is damaging you, and it will get worse if you don't cease and desist confess, make restitution, and attempt to set things straight. 
And I, I, would, I would just appeal to you, you know, as your pastor, do that before it's too late. Because what you do to yourself when you steal, things like, like what? Well, it produces guilt, a loss of self-respect. No thief can look in the mirror and respect themselves. Uh, and, and, and it erodes, stealing erodes your sense of right and wrong. It's interesting, stealing and lying, they're put together in the Ten Commandments, right side by side, they, they almost always go together. We're going to see that next week. They, there's a lot of overlap and a lot of interplay and intertwining between stealing and lying. They have to go together. And so when you steal, you are eroding your sense of right and wrong. You're starting to live in, in, in a dreamland and, and reality starts getting very fuzzy. And a lot of people never think it may lead to criminal prosecution. Probably a lot of us in here have been watching this trial the last two weeks of Alex Murdoch, classic example, um, who's accused and convicted now of murdering his wife and son. Terrible, wretched thing. Uh, the prosecution built the case that this all began because of stealing and lying. That Alex Murdoch, over a period of years, is a very respected attorney uh, in South Carolina, had stolen a vast amount of money from his firm bezeled and stuff, and then tried to cover his tracks with all kinds of lying and more stealing and more lying, and they built the case <clears throat> that one of his primary motives for the murder of his son and wife was to try to distract and deflect attention. He had just been fired. He knew justice was turning, the wheels were turning, and a tsunami of justice was just about ready to hit him. And in some bizarre, evil, twisted way, he decides, I'll deflect attention coming my way by murdering my son and wife. And it all began, goes back to stealing and lying. And again, that's the, that's the kind of stuff we don't think about down the road. That's the danger of stealing. It starts eroding our sense of right and wrong, and pretty soon we lose all sense of right and wrong. By the way, if you didn't listen to the judge afterwards when he was doing the sentencing, it was a moving uh, a talk. Becky and I watched the whole thing last night, about 25 minutes. I would encourage you to listen to it. Very soft-spoken judge and very wise, and he addressed the court and just kind of gave this overview, and it was chilling, and yet it was pastoral. I mean, it was very interesting to listen to him talk about where the consequences of our sin can lead us and the danger, and to, it, was, it, it, was a, it was a sobering wake-up call. You're sitting there kind of with chills down your back like, yikes, I better behave myself. And that's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. All right, let's get personal. Uh, the job of a preacher is to comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable. And so, since we're all comfortable here, including myself, uh, how, let's do the how of this command. Just like Jesus said there's more than one way to murder somebody and there's more than one way to commit adultery, uh, the Bible's very clear there's more than one way to steal. There's numerous ways you can violate the Eighth Commandment. I'm only going to zero in on a few, a few. Uh, I'm not covering all the different ways. I can't. It's, it's probably impossible, but here's, here's a few. Number one, just direct outright theft, seizure, like the people that broke into our motel. That was deliberate. Their footprints in the snow, broken window, jimmied cash box, filing cabinet broken open. That's, that's premeditated. <laughs> It's, it had all the hallmarks of an inside job by somebody, and it was intentional and deliberate, it was cruel and mean, it was wicked, and that's just outright seizure. This could also be employees cheating on expense reports, uh, 
Some of you have done and or are doing that right now. Stealing is something as stealing towels. Amazing uh, how many people stole towels from our motel uh, or bedding or things, stealing other things. I had a guy walk out this morning and confessed, I, I've taken a pen before when they give it away. I'm like, that's okay. You can, I mean, if they gave it to you and it's got a bank's name on it and they're like giving them to you, oh, okay. You know. Praise God for sensitive consciences. It could be, uh, how, how about this one? That's since we're in tax season. Uh, a lot of us right now are in the process of giving our information either directly to the IRS or to our uh, accountant, right? Becky and I just finished this whole process. And when we do this with our accountant, uh, we have to sign, as you probably do, a piece of paper that says, to the best of my knowledge, the information I have provided you is accurate. Now, obviously, your W-2 and stuff's coming from your employer. That's going to be accurate. But there's other information you have to provide that you'd really, he doesn't necessarily have a documentation for. And so you're, you're saying, I am, best of my knowledge, everything I'm giving you is honest. They're honest figures. So some of us have cheated. Or some of us are contemplating right now. So I, I said this first service. Some of you are in the, you know, right in the middle of giving tax information. Next month's tax month. It, it may just, if you're thinking of cheating the IRS, not a good idea. And if you're trying to think about cheating, uh, even the information you're giving to your accountant, not a good idea. Friends, uh, if you think the price of obedience is high, try the price of disobedience. In looking in the mirror, knowing you've cheated. Even if you never got caught on earth, you're going to face justice. I'm going to face justice. Don't do it. It's not worth the price. So just direct seizure shoplifting. It's a big one. It's a big one. That's direct seizure. And some of us have shoplifted, some of us have shoplifted, and we've not made restitution. You need to make restitution. Secondly is deception. It's a form of stealing. When we take something in a dishonest way and the people don't realize it. This is, this is a little more subtle, like price fixing or cheating customers or lying about needed repairs. I am thankful where I go for car repairs, they've actually talked me out of stuff more than once. If you want to know where I go, ask me afterwards. But I'll, I, I, I thank, I'm thankful for it. A couple times, guys are like, no, you don't. You know, I thought I needed something. Like, no, you don't need that. Forget it. You, you're fine. And some of it was, it was, was pricey. And they've said, you don't need it. I'm thankful for that. That's, that's, as I said, honesty, lying, stealing usually go uh, hand in hand. Proverbs 11.1 1 speaks to deceiving others. Listen to this. The Lord abhors or hates dishonest scales. But listen to the second part. But accurate weights are his delight. Well, most of us probably never memorize uh, Proverbs 11.1. 1, but what a verse. That God actually delights when we're doing business in the marketplace honestly. Christian or not. He says right here, accurate weights, meaning on a scale, you know, and not defrauding somebody, are his delight. We're not cheating somebody. He, God delights in that. That's good. Third way we violate this is outright just defrauding. And, and, and defrauding is not so much direct seizure. It's withholding something that belongs to someone else. Uh, that's, you know, defrauding. So in our first church, we had a dear, sweet little old lady that lived next door to us out in rural Minnesota. 
just a salt of the earth, godly woman. Never, she'd never been married. And she took to Becky and I, and we just had a great relationship. I, we consider living next to her a huge blessing for several years, and I can't wait to see her again in heaven. And she, she, was, she had no money virtually. She was poor. She lived in Social Security. For 30 years, she'd plucked the oil glands off turkey tails on an assembly line. That's what she did for a job. She did not have much money. May is her name. She had very little money. And interesting is we got to know May. Uh, very tender-hearted. One of the things every every uh, every spring or every early summer, made you know she'd raise chickens and she would she wanted them for meat and eggs and all this, but she never had the heart to kill them. And so I don't know. I guess next door here's the young pastor and his wife, and so I became the executioner every spring of all these crazy chickens. We she let us know it's 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 you know judgment day and. So I'd come over and I had to do it. So I was the executioner. I had a stump and a, some nails and I had to put the chicken down in there and like, you know, good luck. Going to whack. You know, whew, I'll keep this PG. And Becky and her were the pluckers and the dippers in the hot water and, you know, all this. It was, it was. But May, as she would talk to us, she would share. And one of the things she shared about defrauding was she had a niece that had borrowed hundreds and hundreds of dollars from her. She kept telling us about this. You know, and one day I said, has your niece ever repaid you? No. She just keeps borrowing. And I'm like, well, May, you know, maybe you should stop loaning her money, and she really should repay you. That's defrauding. That, that's, that's, that's not legitimate. That's, that's taking... She also... Uh, she, I remember she got a letter from a prominent televangelist at one point who actually encouraged her to go borrow money to send to him. And I said, can I have that letter? Could I respond to this said evangelist? And she let me, and he got a hot letter. And surprise, 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 I never got a response. But he's trying to bilk a widow. But defrauding, you know, a niece not paying money back, whatever, there's, there's other kinds of defrauding. An employer who cheats his employees, borrowing something, not returning it. Leviticus 19.13, don't hold back the wages of a hired man. That's stealing. That's not outright seizure. That's different. That's not cheating in the marketplace with inaccurate weights. But if somebody is, you know, earns something legitimately and you're not giving it, you're not paying it, that's defrauding. Okay, now time for confession. A couple years ago, no, actually more than a couple years ago, a few years ago, I'd borrowed a, a, a tool from a, a friend, and uh, I had it for some time. It was just sitting there, and one day my son Ben saw it, and it's like, you've had that a long time. Like, well, I, yeah, I guess, yeah, you're right. Isn't that kind of like stealing, Dad? <laughs> Go do your homework, you know. <laughs> no, I did He's right. He's right. It was, that's a form of, of, of stealing. It's, it's defrauding. I'm, I'm withholding something that belongs to someone else. All right, I'm going to go now where a lot of you hoped I wouldn't go, but let's talk about robbing God. And to do this, I want you to turn with me to Malachi chapter 3, because here we have very clear, painfully clear language about the danger of stealing from God. Some of you who are newer to the Bible might be like, stealing? How do you steal from God? Well, the Bible is very clear. We'll see it here. Here's the quick teaching. The Bible teaches 
both in the Old and New Testament. Jesus mentions this twice. It's taught in the Old Testament, the principles there, of the tithe. Some people don't know what tithe means. Tithe is a Hebrew word. It means ten, either a tenth or ten. That's what it means. The Bible's teaching of we are to give back to the Lord in our local church 10% of what He gives us, and that's called tithing. And then beyond that, the Bible encourages us to be sacrificial givers to the poor and needy and stuff like that too, on top of our tithing. And tithing is viewed in the Bible as a uh, floor, not a ceiling. We're to be a generous people. If, if we know Christ, I know not everyone here does, but if you know Jesus and you are born again and His Holy Spirit's alive in you, we are commanded to be sacrificial givers, and that starts with the tithe and God's great promise of blessing on those who do and His curse on those who don't. But here it is, and it's put in the kind of wording of if we are not tithing and we profess Christ, we're robbing God. We're stealing from Him. Uh, Malachi, last book of the Old Testament, chapter 3, verse 6 and following. Interesting phrase that he starts out with, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Now you ask, well, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? And yet you're robbing me. You ask, how are we robbing you? God's answer in tithes and offerings, you're under a curse. Your whole nation, because you're robbing me. This is direct stealing from God. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And then some of us know this, some of us don't. It's the only time in the Bible where God actually says, obey me on this. I'm promising blessing if you do. And if you don't believe me, test me. Test me. And he says right here, test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. And see, if I don't open, throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing, you're not going to have room enough to store it. And we've when I preach on tithing, I, we look at blessing as a broad category in the Bible. It does cover finances, but it also covers blessing God, blessing on our marriage and our family, His blessing on our ministry. It's, it's a broad category. But bottom line is, do you want God's blessing on your... What do you want written over your house? Blessing or curse? And I want blessing written over my house, and God is very clear. If I am withholding my tithe, if I am chintzing on my tithing, if I'm not being sacrificial, you go into the wisdom books... If I'm not helping out the poor and needy God brings across my path above and beyond my tithing and being sacrificial, I'm cheating people and I'm cheating God. We're supposed to be, uh, and we, meaning those who know Christ, a, a generous people. So, I don't have, again, I can't cover all the different ways of stealing, but I think we're starting to see and be reminded there's lots of different ways to steal. And God is very clear, it's sinful, it's wicked, and God endorses private property if you've earned it or been gifted or inherited, and it's legit, you know, it's legitimately yours, and we're not to take anyone else's or defraud or withhold, especially from God. And some of us here this morning, I hope you consider this a gentle warning from the Lord that you're not on a good path. And I plead with you, Stop before it's too late. Because I can guarantee you, Alex Murdoch, when he first started lying and stealing 20, 25, 30 years ago, never dreamed what would happen. 
And there's been way too many Alex Murdochs over human history that never even dreamed where it would all lead someday. And don't even start the first step down that road. All right, what's our summons this morning? Seek, seek the right kind of treasure if you want to gain eternal life. That's how you make... This, this verse points right straight to the gospel. Because in the gospels, Jesus never... It's interesting. Think of this. Jesus never speaks against the impulse of earning. He never speaks against the impulse for treasure. He never does. He never speaks against private property. He wasn't some kind of radical socialist, communist out there. He never did. But what he did do is he talked a lot about the danger of money and the danger of earthly wealth and looking to it for ultimate satisfaction or salvation. That's what he warned against. And he, he talked about it a lot. Of thinking that our earthly possessions and portfolios somehow make us safe in this life and the next life. And he's very clear they do not. And Jesus talked a lot about the deception of the money monster. And he warns against the love of money and the great danger of the love of money. And he warns the day of judgment is coming and there's only one hope for that. Matthew 6 is where he talks about that. And he tells us, uh, how to escape on Judgment Day. So if you're here this morning, if you're visiting, if you're like, well, how do, what do, how do we get right with God? Here's the answer. Jesus in Matthew 6 says, you want treasure in heaven? Do you want to make sure you're on the new heaven and the new earth and forgiven of your sin and avoid judgment and avoid the coming wrath of God in hell? He's very clear how to store up treasure in heaven. And he says this, you have to, in Mark 1 it says also, he came preaching Repent and believe the good news. That's how you do it. And that's what the apostles went out in Jerusalem, and they, that's what they preached. Repent, turn from your sin, acknowledge your sin, and then believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. All right. I'm at the end of my sermon, and I'm going to go to the end of Jesus' life. I want you to hear this. Kids, hear this. When Jesus died, He was crucified on a cross. And He was crucified between two men. What were those men guilty of? They were what? Thieves. They were blatant violators of the Eighth Commandment. Interesting thing about it. Thieves. One on each side of them. Going through the most brutal form of execution probably you can imagine. And as they were on each side of him, one of them mocked him. But one of them cried out to him. Or let me put it another way. One died in his sin and perished. One died to his sin and found eternal life. The one on his side who cried out to him said these words, Jesus, remember me today when you come into your kingdom. One of the shortest prayers of salvation in the Bible. Jesus, remember, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus turned to him and said, I tell you, Today, you're going to be with me in paradise. Friend, if you want to know how to know God, there it is. I think God put that story in there for lots of reasons, but one of them is to remind us, look at these guys were awful human beings. They'd spent their whole life, I'm sure, lying and stealing and doing all kinds of stuff. And yet, there's the reminder, in his dying breath, he cried out to Jesus for salvation. And Jesus said, you're in. You're in my kingdom. That's the grace of God. 
And that's the gospel. And that's what we want to make sure you know about as you're sitting here today. We have a God who forgives. And we have a God filled with grace. And if you will come to him today, either for the first time or you're coming back in repentance, he will be there to lavish forgiveness and joy. Doesn't mean there won't be consequences, but lavish forgiveness and joy on you. We'll have some prayer partners up here after the service who would love to pray with you and talk with you if you need to go further. Father, thank you for the Ten Commandments, for the Ten Words that were given to protect us. We look at a case like the Alex Murdoch's thing, and those are destructive choices, and they lead in horrible places, very dark places. And you gave us these ten words, not to make life miserable, but to protect us so we would flourish and make good choices. Thank you that you delivered your people, then gave them the law. Not to save them, but to protect them. And I pray that those here who know Christ would take the law and view it positively, like David does. And thank you for your law. That they, they, as Isaiah the prophet says, you know, here's the one that you delight in, the one that trembles at your word. And for those who don't know you, Father, may today be the day you open their eyes to their need for Christ and salvation and forgiveness. We pray all of this in Jesus' mighty, global, and majestic name. Amen.